Good morning. I also wanted to remind you that you should get an email either on Mondays or Tuesdays that will have most of these announcements in it every week. So be looking for that email from the church. If you want to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 23. Luke, chapter 23. We're still looking at this period of time in which Pilate is deciding what to do with Jesus. And I had been carrying, I think, for the last several weeks, a bit of anxiety over going to this passage and been praying about it and seeking the Lord about, about it. I'm not sure exactly why for a while I felt this sort of anxiousness, but as I was praying this week, I realized I'm just concerned that we would go to a passage like this and approach it casually. I'm just concerned that we would have a sense of casualness as we read through the story of the cross. So let me, if you wouldn't mind, let me pray for us this morning before we begin our time in this passage. Lord, it is uh, dangerous to come into this chapter without some kind of heartfelt disgust over our own sin. Over the last two, uh, over the last 22 chapters in the Gospel of Luke, you've put forth the uh, the perfect, righteous life of Jesus. Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Jesus as the personification of the law. You've shown us what it is supposed to look like to live a life in love with you. Lord, hopefully, as we've gone through those chapters, we've seen this perfect, gleaming righteousness of Jesus and understood that we don't look anything like that hopefully lord by the time we we get to this passage where jesus is crucified we are in need of relief for our consciences we are in need of water to quench what we can feel as this burning guilt before you or hopefully we see jesus and say i'm nothing like that and yet I'm called to be like that, I, but I haven't, I haven't hated what is evil. I haven't loved what is good, Lord. Hopefully, you've prepared our hearts by the last 22 chapters. I just don't want, Lord, for us to walk into this section of Scripture and yawn at the cross. Because I really don't know what hope there would be for us if we begin to treat the cross of Jesus with apathy. And so, Lord, I come before you and pray that you would do that which is so far beyond the capacity of a preacher. That you would illuminate your word, that you would stir the heart, that you would make us eager, desperate to hear the good news of Christ crucified for the remission of sins. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, when my kids would break things, uh, as they don't break things anymore, but when they were kids, they would break things and they would always, the, 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 the immediate rejoinder was always, uh, I didn't mean to, right? Now, I was a child once, and my dad handled this moment expertly so that when my kids said to me, I didn't mean to, I had it already loaded inside of me to respond with what my dad used to say to me, which was, but did you mean not to? 
My dad would say that to me after I broke something, and I just felt like he had rhetorically cornered me. He just nailed the whole situation perfectly with that phrase. But did you mean not to? The sense of which, yeah, you didn't mean to knock over the vase. Yeah, you didn't mean to drive the car into a snowdrift. But were you really focusing? Were you really making the effort not to do those things? Man, that always used to get me. Well, today we're going to be looking at two characters in the book of Luke, chapter 23. Pilate and Barabbas, and we're going to see two, two elements of our sin that perhaps we don't see very often. And first, when we look at Pilate, we'll see that in some ways, this difference between not meaning to and meaning not to is what brought Jesus to the cross. In Luke 23, Pilate doesn't want to crucify Jesus. If you read that text carefully, 1 through 25 or so, you'll see Pilate doesn't want to crucify Jesus. In verse 4, he says of Jesus, I find no guilt in this man. But also in verse 4, the people were urgent, saying uh, that he stirs up the people of uh, the people teaching throughout Judea from Galilee even to this place. He tries to load Jesus off to Herod. This is the second attempt. He tries to load Jesus off onto Herod, but Herod eventually sends him back. He says to the crowd a second time, look, Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore release him, punish and release him. Now, the third time he comes and says, essentially, I find no guilt in this man. Each attempt to release Jesus is met by the crowd's insistence that he be crucified. In verse 16, he says, look, I've found nothing deserving guilt, uh, deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. And this time they say, no, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. So what's going on here? Who's Barabbas? Luke includes his name in a way that we're expected to know who Barabbas is. This probably means that in the contemporary audience to which Luke was addressed, Barabbas was a known quantity. He was someone who people knew about. And of course, there would be some lasting infamy or fame, depending on how you view it, of the man who was traded for Jesus, the man, the man who was sprung when Jesus was sentenced. So Luke just refers to Barabbas, and we're supposed to know who Barabbas is. John gives us more information about Barabbas. John reminds us that once a year, Rome would throw the Jews of Palestine a bone, and they would release one prisoner uh, right around the time of Passover. So as the Jews are celebrating, you get the whole poetic you know, symbolism here. As the Jews are celebrating the release from captivity in which the Lord delivered them out of slavery and into freedom, the Romans would release one Jew from prison. And it was typically up to Rome to decide who they would release. But Pilate is really not interested in crucifying Jesus. And so... He issues, we see this in John uh, more, more, in more detail, he issues this offer, how about I release Jesus as this once a year prisoner release. And in John 18, we see the crowd respond by saying, no, give us Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? Well, we know from the scripture that he is a man found guilty, imprisoned for insurrection and murder that's in verse 23 luke 23 a man who was thrown into prison for insurrection and murder 
And the people insisted that they would prefer to have Barabbas over Jesus. You see, Pilate didn't mean to kill Jesus. He just didn't mean not to. Eventually, all of the arguments in favor of killing Jesus were stronger than the arguments in, in, against killing Jesus. He found, at least at the beginning, Jesus generally agreeable, generally good, generally worth sticking up for, up to a point. And then his affection for Jesus was interrupted by a more powerful love. I'm hoping this is beginning to sound familiar. He found Jesus agreeable, good, worth sticking up for, up to a point. But then his affection for Jesus was interrupted, or his appreciation perhaps, his appreciation for Jesus was interrupted by a more powerful love. He loved power. He loved people. Pilate, this is important, Pilate wasn't so much anti-Jesus as he was pro-Pilate. Which, of course, the Bible sees, of course, as the same thing. And our hearts almost never see as the same thing. Pilate would not have said, I'm not against Jesus. Pilate would have said, I'm not against Jesus. I'm just kind of more for me. And the Bible would say, yeah, that means you're against Jesus based on who Jesus is. You see, we often make a place for Jesus until something better comes along that needs that space. We're living in an apartment right now, and it's really a, a, a great exercise in priorities. Because there's not a lot of room, and everything that comes into the apartment needs a place. You have to make these judgment calls about what's important and what's not. And we see at the beginning of this passage, Pilate having this general sense that he ought to treat Jesus well. He ought not crucify Jesus. He's got a place in his heart for Jesus. But then the insistence of the crowd comes in. And a threat to his own power comes in. And he's got to make room for those things because they're important to him. And so he puts them in the place where Jesus once occupied. We often will make some effort to obey until a greater affection comes calling, until that irresistible appetite comes knocking, until the fear of rejection looms large. We love Jesus until he costs us the thing we love more than Jesus. Years ago, when I served as a youth pastor, Angelo and I got to see, or maybe were forced to witness, uh, these little high school romances rise and fall, ebb and flow. You know, senior year was always an interesting time for these. It was fairly common for uh, for these two little lovebirds to, to break up either about a month before leaving for college or a couple months after coming back from college. The message was clear. The, the person who was doing the breakup would say, in our small, they wouldn't say this, but this was what they were saying. In our small little world, you were my pick. But now my world is bigger, and I think I can do better. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that kind of a deal. Jesus has been on the receiving end of that deal very, very often. When it comes to our view of Jesus, it isn't always easy to detect the difference between a convenient affection and a costly allegiance. 
in the right circumstances, what is only a crush, a, a convenient affection for Jesus, can look like actual discipleship, can look like actual conversion. When the cost is low, it isn't always easy to tell the difference between a high school crush and a commitment to Jesus. And Pilate is an example of this kind of displacement that takes place. He's got this category for Jesus that's generally respectable. He doesn't want to kill him. It's just that there are other things that he wants more. When it comes to our view of Jesus, it is not easy, especially in sweet circumstances, to detect the difference between a cross-bearing allegiance and a convenient affection. So that people every day say things like, obviously don't say them, but they think them. I thought I loved Jesus, but then I got married and had kids, and they fill up most of what I used God for back in the day. I thought I loved Jesus, but then I found sexual pleasure to be just as satisfying. I thought I loved Jesus, but then I found being safe and successful to scratch those itches. I thought I loved Jesus, but then I found that living for my boss's approval was better. I could go on and on, but the idea is simple. Pilate has a place for Jesus until he doesn't. And it is not always easy in certain circumstances to discern the difference between what feels like discipleship and what is in actuality just a high school crush. You know, I heard this, uh, this, this old Welsh preacher say one time, that uh, he said, you know, application of the text isn't only my job. It's your job too, right? It's just as much your job as a listener as it is my job as a preacher. And I don't want to spend, I think I, think I, would, I would be in danger of tearing up uh, wheat with tares if I spent an entire sermon talking only about this, right? It's It's... It's that insidious. It's that difficult to discern. But friends, before we get into seeing the God of the universe nailed to a tree, if I were you, especially if I were you in my 20s, growing up in certain circumstances that are more or less favorable to having a convenient affection for Jesus, I might ask, how do I know I'm not any different than Pilate? who, when the cost got high, flaked out, walked away. You know, there's an interesting detail in this text. Pilate, in an effort to avoid making this decision about Jesus, tried to send Jesus to Herod. And Herod and Pilate weren't buds. They were, they were sort of against each other. And I could go into all the political reasons for that. But they weren't, they weren't friends. In an effort to avoid making a decision about Jesus. You'll do that too, by the way, today. You'll, you'll prefer not to decide whether you have a costly allegiance or a convenient affection. You'll prefer to, to boot, to punt, right? Uh, that would be a huge waste of God's kindness to bring you here on this snowy day. But there's this, there's this very interesting detail where Pilate and Herod... Are against each other. Jesus sent, or Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Herod sends 
Jesus back to Pilate. That didn't work out. Pilate didn't get through the loophole that he was hoping to get through. But then it says, they became friends from this day forward. Reading that, I'm thinking, so it is possible to crucify Jesus and go on having a relatively good life. It's possible to deny Jesus and to go on and make friends. It's possible to walk away from the God of the universe and build new relationships. Discerning the difference between a costly allegiance and a convenient affection is important. And I trust that the Holy Spirit in His work this morning will embed that word in your heart and let you think through in the preceding weeks, where you stand with Jesus. I will say this. I'm convinced that God is so good, He will not let you live your whole life without having an opportunity to answer that question. And He will do that by bringing in not-so-favorable circumstances into every life here. Temptations, opportunities, and you will be able to see for yourself if the Lord gives you the light, you'll be able to see for yourself what you think of Jesus. Really think of Jesus. Well, the text moves on from talking about Pilate to this man named Barabbas. Let's turn the spotlight on him. We see in verse 25 that, he was re- that, that, that Pilate released the man, Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate introduces the idea, as we've said, of letting Barabbas go for the Passover prisoner release program. The crowd demands a man named Barabbas instead. And we, if you've ever heard a sermon preached about Barabbas, hopefully you've heard a good sermon preached about Barabbas once in your life. He's a compelling figure. If you've heard a good sermon preached about Barabbas, then you've probably heard the idea of Barabbas as a symbolic representation of substitutionary atonement. The idea that Barabbas is a picture of what Jesus did for everybody that he died to save in taking their place. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what you've got in this picture of Barabbas is a picture of the gospel itself. Jesus takes our place. He takes our place. What I would like to do today is to get a little more granular than that. Let's zero in because it's not only this sort of generic idea of substitutionary atonement where we see that Jesus takes our place. But we can dial right straight into the heart of Barabbas' crimes and see the true nature of our sins. Barabbas isn't just generically a prisoner. He isn't just generically a criminal. He isn't just generically a sinner, and neither are you. Barabbas is a particular kind of criminal, an insurrectionist, a traitor, He's committed the crime of high treason. He's in prison for treason. And now we get to see 
the heart of our sin. Luke uses this word insurrection, and it's actually really important that we understand what insurrection is. To those in authority, insurrection is treason. Insurrection is the attempt to overthrow an existing authority. To those in authority, insurrection is treason. Now, history has a very interesting way of judging revolutionaries. And not all of them wind up getting called terrorists in the end. Now, modern historians, they struggle to assign any kind of morality to the revolutionaries in history. But we shouldn't have that same struggle because we believe in good and evil and right and wrong. And the truth is, if we were to go through the history books, we'd be able to say this person rose up against his government and he was righteous in doing so, though not perfectly or completely. And this person rose up against their government and they were not righteous in doing so. The truth is, is that one of the one of the keys to reading the New Testament well, reading the Gospels well, especially is to understand that for the 400 years preceding the writing of the Gospels, or preceding the birth of Jesus, for the 400 years preceding the birth of Jesus, Palestine, the place where all the Jews lived, Israel, uh, it was a geopolitical football, and there were many rulers over this land, and many insurrections, many coups d'etat. Palestine was way more like South America. Than, than, than your and I, the American experience. This was a place where there were revolutions almost you know, every year. Some of them good, most of them not. There was a moment when um, a, a Hellenistic uh, emperor ruled over that place named, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I can't think of his first name all of a sudden. Oh, Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanies meaning God manifest. So he's claiming to be God. He's this, he's this Gentile overlord. This is about, it's about 200 years before Jesus. He's claiming to be this Gentile overlord. He's just trying to force Hellenization, force the Greek thing down the throats of the Jews. They'd kind of been going along with it in previous years, but now it was coming by force. And he actually made it illegal to practice circumcision. He made it illegal to observe the Sabbath. He made it illegal to possess uh, a copy of the Torah. And if you found doing any of those three things, you were, you were executed. He, he sort of culminated all of this forced Hellenization by bringing a pig into the Holy of Holies and sacrificing the pig on the altar of the Holy of Holies. A man named Maccabeus, uh, Matthias Maccabeus rose up and revolt and a whole series of revolutions took place and you had the exchange of power and control many, many, many times over those 400 years. Insurrection was just super common. Uh, Israel had a thirst for revolution as Rome began to occupy them. Everybody was all about the overthrow of the government. It was the hobby of the day. It was like our, their football. Kind of really was. And sometimes those revolutions were just. Sometimes those insurrections were righteous. Many times they were not. They never ended well because whoever took power was a sinner just like the person before. And if they were righteous, then their sons or their sons' sons wouldn't be. This whole cycle of insurrection is just futile. It's stupid. It's terrible to see as you're reading history. And everybody in this story that we're reading in Luke 23 is embroiled in it. And this is why everybody's so confused about Jesus, by the way. 
Because association with what it meant to be a Messiah involved overthrowing the government. So Jesus is standing before Pilate. They're attempting to make the, the Jews are attempting to make the case that, that this Jesus man is an insurrectionist. Pilate isn't seeing it. Friends, the Romans ruled Palestine better than almost anyone because they were able to establish the rule of law. And they were able to establish the rule of law by making examples of men like Barabbas. So here's Barabbas, this insurrectionist, guilty of murder, of attempting to overthrow the government. And we see, as we read the Gospels, that there's no question about his moral culp- culpability. There's no question about whether or not he's a good guy or a bad guy. He's a bad guy. His, his insurrection isn't legitimate. The Bible just says he's a criminal. He's guilty of treason. And that long loop around was to help you to see. Friends, Treason against the Most High God is so common that we treat it like it's nothing. But it's still treason, even if it's happening all the time. It's still a coup, even if there was a coup last year and a coup the year before. Just because our culture, the very air we breathe, is full of cosmic treason doesn't change the fact that sin is cosmic treason. The sovereign creator of the universe has said, thou shall and thou shall not. And we are very thankful when he says to the sun, thou shall warm the earth, but thou shalt not warm it too much. The sovereign God of the universe says, to our hearts, thou shalt beat. And we are very thankful for those thou shalts. And we appreciate that thou shalt not beat too fast and kill thine body. We love the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots when they're applied to the creation that we love, by the way, to hijack and worship rather than the creator who's forever blessed. We, we love the thou shalt and thou nots when they're reigning over this world full of potential chaos and sustaining everything we enjoy by the word of his power. But when those thou shalt and thou shalt nots are directed to our hearts, we're the only thing in the universe that says no and then tries to justify it. As anything other than treason. Everything else in creation obeys the thou shalt and the thou shalt not, and they exalt and worship in their obedience. And we shake our fists like the latest Banana Republic two star general with no bullets in his gun and claim. We will cast his burdens, his bonds from us. R.C. Sproul said, remember that God voluntarily created us. He gave us the highest privilege of being his image bearers. He made us but a little lower than the angels. He freely gave us dominion over all the earth. 
We are not turtles. We are not fireflies. We are not caterpillars or coyotes. We are people. We are the image bearers of the holy and majestic king of the cosmos. We have not used this gift of life for the purpose God intended. Life on this planet has become the arena in which we daily carry out the work of cosmic treason. Our crime is far more serious, far more destructive than that of Benedict Arnold. No traitor to any king or nation has even approached the wickedness of our treason before God. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute peccadillo, what we are saying to our Creator when we disobey Him in the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. The slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act, a rebellious act in which we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. It is an insult to his holiness, and we become false witnesses to God. When we sin as the image bearers of God, we are saying to the whole creation, to all of nature under our dominion, to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, this is how God is. This is how your creator behaves. Look in his mirror. Look at us and you will see the character of the Almighty. We say to the world, God is covetous. We say to the world, God is ruthless. We say to the world, God is bitter. We say God is a murderer, a thief, a slanderer, or an adulterer. God is all of these things that we, his image bearers, are doing. And Barabbas was sentenced to crucifixion for treason. According to Roman law, there was no question that he deserved to die. Our guilt as insurrectionists is in direct correlation to the righteousness of our ruler. Our sin is more than just a bad idea, more than a mistake or a misguided affection. It is all those things and a whole lot more. Our sin is cosmic treason. You and I daily reap the benefits of this world obeying the word of power which sustains it. And daily turn to that same word and say, Thou shalt not tell me what to do. And thou shalt give a good explanation for everything you demand.
When he tells the world what to do, the creation what to do, it obeys. When he tells your cells what to do, they obey. When he tells our hearts what to do, we're cosmic anarchists. We reap the benefits of divine law in every area of our lives and then refuse his divine law over our own persons. So I want you to picture Barabbas walking free out into the crowd with what I imagine is a fake tough guy smile, the fake tough guy smirk, thinks he's gotten away with something. He has. He really, really has. More than he knows. I want you to walk out of here with a smile. If Christ took your place. We've got Pilate forced in this moment. We see Pilate displaying this what this convenient affection for Jesus that looks all too familiar. We see Barabbas displaying this, this picture of cosmic treason, of eternal guilt, of execution-worthy insurrection. And right in the center of all this swirling evil, we see the man, Christ Jesus. Your only hope. Your only hope. Your only hope. You are Pilate. You are Barabbas. Not just metaphorically. And in the midst of all of the swirling sins of your heart, all of the wickedness and darkness, there is the man Christ Jesus. Righteousness from God. The Lamb who takes the sins away from the world. He is your only hope. He is my only hope. I am too much of a treasonist. I am too much of a convenient affection high school crush on Jesus until it costs me something, guy. Jesus is my only hope. His allegiance to the Father endured every temptation. No other love displaced his love for the Father. His was a costly affection, a costly allegiance to Jesus, to the Father. And, and it's so amazing, Pilate releases the one who is far more dangerous. Or he, he, he releases the one who is far less dangerous. He keeps the one in prison who is far more dangerous. Jesus is a revolutionary revolutionary. Jesus is the one who, come, who has come, 1 John 3, 8. Jesus is the one who has come to destroy the works of the devil. And he's my only hope. Because I'm too much of Pilate and I'm too much of Barabbas to have any other idea of how I will live this life and face the God of the universe who created me to bear his image in the world other than to appeal to the perfect righteousness of the one who, whose allegiance to the Father endured every temptation. And who came to overthrow 
the works of the devil, not by killing, but by being killed. Jesus offered himself to set you free from the cosmic treason, from the faltering, lightweight, high school crush affections that you call your faith. He's your only hope. We won't get into it today. A couple weeks we'll move from what I'm talking about now to this moment in verse 26. And they led him away. And they led him away to be crucified. He who knew no sin, he who was not an insurrectionist, became your sin. He who was not flaky became your sin. So that in him, you might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, I leave a chunk of time here for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. If not today, if not now, then later today or this week. Please, Lord, don't let us enter into the most sacred spot in Scripture with apathy. What hope do we have if we yawn at the greatest demonstration of love there is to see? What hope do we have if we yawn at the greatest exhibition of your hatred against sin that we've ever seen? We ought to enter into the next section of Christ crucified with an eagerness to hear about the Christ, the man Christ Jesus who stands in the midst of all the swirling sin of our hearts and offers white instead of stained blood, clean instead of dirty, freedom instead of prison, righteousness instead of guilt. Lord, lift up Jesus in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. As this table is set before us, Lord, I pray that you would give your people, through your spirit, the power to do business with you today. Help them, Lord. Help them, Lord, to worship, to revel, to delight in the offer, the opportunity, the redemption purchased for all who would believe with your blood. Make this table, Lord, an opportunity to worship Jesus. We love you. We want to love you. All we have is Jesus. We don't dare walk away thinking 
we've got anything to offer but him. Thank you, Lord.